This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Thank you for tuning in to our second episode in the After Corona series, in which we will take a closer look at the social consequences of the lockdown in Berlin with Talia Blockland. If you have a question for our guest, please do get in touch with us via email, Twitter, or Instagram. In a regular fashion, we will give them the chance to respond in this podcast. So today we're going to discuss the social consequences of the lockdown with respect to existing social and educational inequalities and community life. My name is Markus Kipp and together with my colleague Ross Beveridge, we're pleased to welcome our guest. Could you briefly introduce yourself, please? My name is Talia Blockland. I'm a professor in urban and regional sociology at Humboldt University in Berlin. And most of my work is in, uh, deals with issues of social inequalities within cities, neighborhoods, uh, questions of community and place. To begin with, could you introduce us to your notion of community as an urban practice? What is your key idea here? I was um, very early when I started doing my graduate work. I was I was um, impressed by how often people seem to think in urban policy that if a poor neighborhood didn't really stick together, people didn't really know each other, that that was a problem and a lack of community. So very early on, I've been interested in the ways in which the, con the idea of community and togetherness and belonging and all these kind of related concepts, how they're linked to place. And I sort of developed various perspectives on that over the year till I then wrote this um, rather small book, I'd say, that brings some of those scattered ideas of different publications together. And in that, that argument there is that um, there's too much focus on community in social science as if it's a stable construct, as if a community, idea of communities all only formed through very durable relations of kinship, friends, neighbors. And I wanted to sort of draw attention to the sense of community um, as we gather in, well, we gathered, we're not gathering now, we're all staying inside, but as we, before they took the city away from us, uh, had our ways of gathering in public space and sort of trying to think of how two other types of social interactions or social relationships that are not necessarily your close friends and people who you can call by names, but are actually just people that you meet on a very regular basis, like in the bakery where you always buy your bread, uh, at the bus stop where you always enter the bus with the same people, how those kind of fluid encounters um, that are not at all durable, they're very brief and, and you don't even have to talk to each other, but also constitute a community. So I've kind of tried to think from there and then to say, well, if that is, if that is what community is too, then it's actually a practice of things we do. And we do this especially in in um, spaces that are dense and heterogeneous. Now, in in our current situation dealing with this coronavirus, how how does your previous uh, research on or or theoretical take on community help you make sense of the current situation? I don't know if anybody can really make sense of the current situation in a proper scientific way not even a virologist and the i think what we what the first thing i want to say is that 
I don't think what I observe is the consequence of the coronavirus. It's the consequence of the shutdown that is deemed essential to deal with the coronavirus because we have a health system that can't deal with everybody at the same time. The perspective of community as urban practice um, very much looks at the ways in which people may form settings of belonging through through two type of practices. One is the sort of rootedness, which is I've lived in the same place for a very long time and I know my routines and I know the routines from everybody else and I'm sort of rooted. And that's the understanding of communities that many, many people have. But there's another way in which in a life where many people are living in places where they're not born and there's a lot of movement or there was a lot of movement and and in the context of globalization, but you can actually also have experience of recognizing that you belong to that you that you are part of a certain site where you happen to be on your way to someone else someplace else so i'm trying to play in that in that work with the idea of rootedness as r-o-o-t and rootedness as r-o-u-t so to say um so the roots that we take versus the roots like the roots of a tree people are not trees they're not rooted so but now it's at that entire intervention in the public space um, takes away those fluid encounters and it takes away those durable engagements where the durable engagements are more the sort of things that you have and you go to a certain say if you go to the school to pick up your child every day you see the same parents every day so there's a durable way in which you engage with the practice of picking up your child and that that is not there so i think that that means that from my perspective, um, we've taken community out of our lives. As Talia, just um, obviously you're um, quite critical about that. We, we, we can sense that. I was wondering, um, is is there something, is there a comparable, is there something we could compare the current situation to um, historically in terms of, essentially putting community on hold you know it's, it's, it's a suspension of uh, uh, community or, or society even is, is there some kind of historical parallels that we can draw on people have talked about I saw the UN talking about the biggest crisis since the second world war uh, today um, I, I'm not sure about that but is this is this something you know that we can think of in terms of the past that might help us understand the current situation um I think um, what I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in doing some historical, looking at some historical public, publications by historians, for example, about uh, um, um, the cholera epidemic in London at, at the end of the 19th century. Because what interests me isn't so much the, the fact that that community is, is that this, this that, that this types of public interactions and the public familiarity that is produced by face-to-face -face interactions in public space and the civic disattention and all these kind of things that that's interactionists in sociology have written a lot about people like Lynn Laughlin and all that 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 is very fascinating to me how how we've put that all out we and I'm not so sure about the about whether we've put it on hold and tomorrow or in six months or in two weeks or who, who knows when we are allowed to go out again and um, if that's just going to come back 
in that easy way. And it's going to have the same nature. And I can say something about that. But to, to your question about the historical point, um, I, I think what is, in, what is important to look at is the ways in which unequal um, effects of the shutdown are, I mean, are comparable with, with things that happened in history. So, so what I've read so far is not very much, but it seems to me that the cholera epidemic in London and, and some of the other epidemics we're looking at, one in India, have also produced very unequal um, uh, suffering, if you want, uh, for groups of the population. And I think it isn't so much that I'm critical of the shutdown as such, but I'm, and I'm, but I'm irritated and angry about the lack of attention for the extremely unequal consequences that, it ha that this has. If we just imagined Corona would have started on Lesbos and not in some ski resort in, in Austria, would we all be in lockdown now? Or is that not a question we can ask? And, and, and that is what, what, um, what worries me. Yeah, thinking, um, you mentioned, uh, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. I won't, I won't try to answer it or think about it at least. Um, and just going back to something you mentioned uh, when you were talking there, uh, in terms of the effects that this has on community generally and this idea that as soon as we switch, we can somehow just switch community or urban society back on once things are over. Um, you sounded a bit sceptical about that. I was wondering if that's yeah. obviously um, with all these kind of different layers of bonds and uh, uh, ways in which communities are formed, uh, they must be quite sens sensitive to these kind of major disruptions. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's, there's what, I, what I distinguish in communities urban practice is a notion that comes originally from Barbara Mistel, um, uh, which is a differentiation between what we call normative normalcy and a situational normalcy. So normative normalcy, normative normalcy is that what you consider to, norm, to be normal because you believe it's the right thing to do. So we now think it's normal to avoid other people because it's normatively considered to be right. And not doing that is deviant. Um, the situational normal is that what we do, where we do not normatively necessarily agree with what happens, but we do it because in the particular situation in which we're in, it's what everybody's doing or what most people are doing. So, so I'm interested in how these normative ideas of what is good society or what is good connection, or what is good urban life, or what is good solidarity between people, and all these kind of questions are linked to situational normalcy. So if we're in lock lockdown like we are now for another six months and we learn to avoid other people, does that, does that do something to what we think is normatively normal, or is this completely separate? Will we still believe that certain ways of, of communicating even with people we whom we only superficially know is that openness that openness to diversity and the conviviality that is that is celebrated in, in much of the literature on urban diverse intense public spaces is that conviviality going to come back or is it that the practice of not being convivial, the practice of ignoring each other and staring to the floor, the practice of stepping away when you see someone coming, 
is are those practices going to affect how we think about what is normal and and how we socialize other people and how we socialize our kids so i i don't think it's so easy i don't think you can you can start distancing i hate the word socially distancing i think that's part of the problem that we're creating but i don't think you can do that and then sort of return immediately to something that was before and i also don't think that the that the 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 quest for for conviviality or the quest for an idea that that diverse public spaces can absorb deviant behavior and you know behavior deviant behavior i mean behavior that is not considered by the mainstream to be to be how things ought to be we've been especially in berlin we've been extremely um uh, good in in creating an an environment that could absorb a lot of things a lot of things and now if you drive around the city at night you see they've taken away all the conformist mainstream stuff so what is left is the non-conformist stuff and i don't know how you're gonna reinstall re an everyday routine again if people start to learn that it's not nice outside and that's what we're learning now right it's not pleasant to go out so I, I'm 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 curious. I don't I don't think it's going to be so easy. I also don't know. Like you now, you'll be getting used to not shaking the hands of anybody. So what is the point? We trust ourselves to shake hands again. And I know that theoretically, and it, this is the hashtag we stay inside and we stay at home. And is is theoretically, it's the idea that that I'm not protecting myself. I'm protecting everybody else from getting ill. But yet, a lot of the um, a lot of the discourse is about I protect myself and my own and this inward orientation on the own group basically the family at the moment but but the the inner circle of people that that you strongly feel that that are yours um that is something I've been looking at for a while and I think that's that was already worrying me a bit and and I think that that's going to be supported by the shutdown and i wonder what what sort of effect that's going to have and what i mean by that more concretely because i know that sounds abstract i want to say something about social segregation because i think that that part of the processes of social segregation that we already have and i mean i mean by this not residential segregation but i mean that we have the Elton Initiative Kindergarten in Germany, which is the, the kindergarten organized by parents that all want to have vegetarian food for their children and want to have Montessori programs for them between the age of two and five. And therefore, they, they start their own kindergarten. And this kindergarten then has a couple of kids that are very similar to each other. So it's an inward or orientation that isn't because of, it's not externally oriented in the sense of you cannot do you cannot be part of us, but it's we have certain things that we think are so important that we, we hoard those opportunities in our group of similar thinking people and, and we don't necessarily think about how to share them. And at the moment, we've been told every day by our governments to stay in our house, be with our families, take care of our people, take care of the people that we know. And, and of course, there's neighborhood initiatives. So the neighborhood still, you know, you can still go shopping for the neighbors. But that's about it. There's no 
other level of solidarity that that we 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 asked for at the moment. I don't think. Since you mentioned um, uh, your interest in 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 comparing uh, this situation to to other uh, epidemics or pandemics that have uh, been elsewhere or in previous histories such as the cholera epidemic in in london and uh did did you already find out uh, something in terms of how this community life this sense of normalcy uh, has changed or not after um the epidemic was over in a very in the, the the plague situation in in the city of rotterdam um this is way much further back um has also You know, there were specific places to put people with the plague in, and it was related to to a side of the city that then this is actually I think this is an interesting thing that in Rotterdam there's a big river, and the main part of the city. So my old work was in Rotterdam, right? So the main part of the city is in the northern bank, and at some point in the 19th century, when the industrialization went um, developed strongly, they started building tenement housing on the south bank of the city. So everybody who had the plague was put on the south south bank of the city, and their reputation of that part of the city as being less, as being as a, as a stigmatized stigmatized place, has never left it. And I don't want to say it's because of the where the, it was where the plague was, but there's an historical narrative of the south of the city as being less proper than the north of the city. Now, the the this, the interesting thing, I think, with, with the virus in Berlin so far is that it's concentrating in areas that are not known to be extremely disadvantaged or do not have a strong negative stigma at all. Now, it started in Mitte and then there's a lot of... The, 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 there where the highest numbers are so far are actually the most gentrified areas. And I think that is extremely interesting because that question of 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 illness and stigmatization and the idea that it's a vi uh, that it can that it's linked to some sort of um which of my reading of some of the history that i've read i haven't read that much because we're only in this for a br very brief time but but that there is a stigmatization of of location and people linked to a particular illness or a particular virus, um, that's going to be difficult to see this time in in Berlin. Can you um, elaborate a little more on this issue of uh, social inequality and how the virus or the uh, outbreak has exacerbated these inequalities? What what kind of um, dimensions yeah, of this can you can you discern? So. When it was decided that in the city of the Berlin of Berlin all playgrounds had to be closed, I was um, looking at the map of Berlin with a colleague of mine, Robert Fief, who was able to create a map of the square meters that people have um, in terms of space. So we know the square meter meters of, of living space pro person. This in the most affluent parts of Berlin. This the highest amount is something like 97 square meters per cop, so per, per per person. So one particular person sitting inside, hashtag, we're staying at home, in Zellendorf, sits off on on 97 square meters. 
if we then go to the high-rise buildings on the edge of the city, where at the moment that this regulation was made, there was an insignificant number of people having it, something like 20 or 30, something like that. Um, the square meters that people have to celebrate with the hashtag, we stay at home, um, that they're doing the right thing for Corona is up to 17 square meters. The child poverty rates are exactly there as we have up to 77% of children living in poverty in neighborhoods where the space that people have available is the, is the smallest and the number of Corona cases so far the lowest. Now, of course, you can say we got to close the playgrounds because play, children spread inf infections. It's two degrees Celsius, five degrees Celsius, seven degrees Celsius outside. Most kids wear gloves when it's seven degrees outside. So the entire argument, we got to close all the playgrounds in the entire city to keep the virus from spreading. That made me really upset because that is absolutely a measurement that works out unequal on children that are already unequal in this particular city. And to tell you the more extreme version of that, I, like, I live in a development where the houses are privately owned. And so are the green spaces in between those houses. And because these are private, guess what? They didn't close. So we have an affluent neighborhood in the city where the playgrounds are private and children continue to rollerblade on this. These are, these are low traffic streets because they're private streets, so they're low traffic streets, so there's no traffic. So they continue riding their bikes, their rollerblades, you know, all these kind of things. While we're locking up poor people, poor kids, on a very small amount of space, on conditions where the negative effects in terms of the precarity of labor are the most severe. That's what I mean when I say it's unequal. Now, and if you then think about how this affects labor, right? So um, we, I've, done, I've done 134 interviews with mothers because I'm interested in how mothers organize resources in the city for, in the city for their kids. And I've always thought that there is a way in which depending on where you live in the city, the normative expectations of what we expect mothers to do are different too. And by we, I mean in particular institutions. So I've done interviews in various neighborhoods with moms. So I know that in some of the high-rise buildings on the edge of the city, the pressure that these mothers are under is, um, is extremely high. Um, in various ways, because of poverty, because of the labor, the type of labor that they do, um, the, the, travel, the travel distances that they have to, to cover in order to get to their jobs, the type of the jobs that they have, and so on. There's, there's 100% closure of all the kindergartens. So the, the juggle that, that people um, have to, the, the, the way in which people have to juggle their responsibilities uh, is currently completely unequally distributed. So you can talk to someone who works in the university uh, um, administration who usually has a lot of office hours with students and things to organize because she's she's responsible for exams and all these kind of things. And you know, I talk on the phone to her in my role as 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 an academic, you know, working in the university, and she says, Well, she's baking cakes, and you know, she's having a good time with the kids because the, the work is really slowed down 
biggest issues are not there. No, she's, she's doing good. But then it's not comparable with families where the, the only income comes from, from writing a cap. You know, the, all these kind of people that work in spaces that depend on urban traffic, whether it's in restaurants, in bars, and there's artists and, you know, all these kind of things. But there's a lot of them where, where there was one sociologist who said, oh, this is good because it's a, night, it's a time for new initiatives. There is no new initiative if all you do is write a cap. If that is what you do, now you're sitting at home, you ain't, there's no way of thinking about doing this creatively. If there's nobody in the city, you can't do much creatively until, unless you belong to the creative class or whatever that's worth that word. But, and that, and that makes me very upset because I think the, the, the unique consequences of this, um, of this, uh, shutdown, um, are very extreme. Uh, Talia, just shifting the, the focus slightly. I mean, a lot's mm-hmm. been made, um, well, in the media, at least, about people using digital media, social media to keep in touch and um, yeah. meet kind of, you know, meeting on Saturday, young people meeting Saturday evenings uh, or all, all this kind of thing. Uh, mm. how, how useful um, a role can that play in communities, in your, your opinion, in keeping the sense of um, some kind of social, social bonds together? Or, or are you yeah. skeptical about that? It is a long tradition of social network research that shows that when social media developed, uh, this is Barry Wellman and others at the University of Toronto showing that when social media developed, um, they're often used for maintaining social ties that were already there. So, so it's true that um, since we have social media, if we now cannot visit our mother, it's easier to communicate over the internet than it was um, without it, and that some of those strong ties can be well maintained um, through social media. However, um, we've done a we, we've done a survey that we're we're about to we're on the publication right now in the context of the Sonderforschungsbereich one two six five at the at the TU, um, where we're interested in seeing thinking about networks slightly differently because networks researchers often asked, so if you have a problem, who do you talk to? And then we say, oh, it's my best friend. But then Mario Small from Harvard University in Boston in the United States, he turned this idea of studying social networks a bit upside down by saying, let me not start asking people who they would talk to, but let me ask them about what their current issue is and who they've talked to about this issue. And we replicated that sort of in a survey that we did in four neighborhoods in Berlin. And we're finding that when we ask people to identify their problem, their issue, the thing that that worries them, and then we ask them where they were when they talked about someone else about this, then in the majority of the cases, they were either in some sort of institutional setting, being in, in a restaurant, a bar, a cafe, a workplace, or they were in public space, or they were in a space in between. That means they were on the way to somebody else while they were talking on their phone. And the last ones would be the digital ones, or they were at home. So the it's not the, the most of the people that talked about things that worried them were not at home while they were talking about this. Now they're at home. 
And then, of course, the question is, do they still engage with the people that they would have been talking to had they been able to go out? Is this an accidental conversation or is it a planned conversation? And a lot of what we now think about as support, in at least that's my impression from the media, is that there's a thinking that support means I have an issue and I look for support to talk about this issue. But sociologists know very well that most of the talking we do about things that concern us, worries that we have, stress, kind of those kind of situations, is, is a by-effect of doing something else. We don't go bowling to give someone, you know, to have a conversation about kidneys. And yet in the famous book by, by Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, he said, you know, the bowling league was so important because he had an example of, a, of two people bowling together and then one learned, and this is the essential word, he learned casually that the other person needed a new kidney and then he gave him his kidney. But this casually is now not possible. We cannot casually learn that you're in stress. I need to contact you. I need to talk to you and I need to ask you, how are you? And you got to give me a good answer an honest answer. And because I cannot really see you, I cannot even check if you're giving me bullshit or not. So the absence of personal interactions has a huge effect of how social capital, as sociologists like to call this, will work. Because social capital is not something we plan. It's something that, that emerges as the byproduct of doing something else. And that byproduct is now not there. And that's problematic because that will get people hurt in various ways. So just imagine that you get beaten up at home. Now, if you happen to go to pick up your child from the kindergarten, you may run into the, Etsia, the to the teacher, the kindergarten teacher, and she may ask why you have a blue eye. Now, you may give her a lie. I'm not suggesting that everybody then immediately tells the truth, but it will be seen. And there will be an opening for forms of social support and for forms of interactions and for forms of courage, giving people courage and for forms of giving people a sense that their existence matters that is completely absent now. And that's not replaced by social media. I do not believe that because social media, there is a lot of you know, websites for, from anything, for anonymous alcoholics to you know, all sorts of self-help groups, but this is an anonymous space where you can write kind of things, and it's not the same as being recognized as a human being by leaving your house. And the absence of this recognition is problematic, in my view. This is a very fascinating way of uh, looking at uh, social capital and networks. I, I, so my question is, uh, you, you identified problems in the current moment that uh, social media cannot compensate. Uh, do you already have a sense of a remedy for the current situation? What, what I mean, is there any way of addressing this in, in a political fashion or is, is, is there no other way than just to wait until we get out on the other side of this crisis? Um, that's hard to say, isn't it? Um, I don't think that there is a way of 
finding a rem an, an alternative to this byproduct of social interactions. I think that's exactly what they are. They're the unintended consequences of intended behavior. So they're not planned and therefore they're hard to replace. Um, I do not know what the costs are gonna be. And, and, I, and I'm hoping, and I really hope that we continue to talk about Corona death um, when people die for other reasons, when we see that other statistics will go up that have nothing to do with the virus, right? That, the, that are the consequence of psychological pressure and all these kind of things. I think what, what, what would be better than having one flachendeckend, we does, uh, uh, as they say in German, right? It's flachendeckend. We need flachendeckend solutions. There's a very strong belief that only flachendeckend solutions are, are, are good ones, that it needs to be the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think if this is going to take longer than, than Eastern, we need to think about that. If this is true, does it have to be the same everywhere and why? And what do you police and what do you not? It seems that politically it's kind of being sold in that way or there's some kind of this consensus yep. is kind of, well, we're all in it together. It kind of affects us all the same. So if we have one general rule, then somehow um, that's fairer. Um, and, uh, so I was saying that that's kind of somehow a kind of political construct. I'm not sure that it really is, but um, uh, it's, there seems to be that, that kind of discourse at the moment. Um, and that's why it's good to have the, the complete lockdown. It's not good, but um, it affects everyone. So there's some kind of, uh, uh, um, whether fairness is the right word, or there's, there's, there's some kind of uh, equal burden or a sense of equal burden, even, of course, when, when that isn't the case. No, that's not the case. This is true. And maybe that's okay, you know. I I, I don't I don't necessarily say that that I'm, I don't necessarily say we can't have the shutdown, but I think we should be very clear that this shutdown protects the better off from getting infected much better than it protects anybody else. And we're only talking. I'm only talking about Berlin because it's the place that I know, and I don't want to talk about you know places like Karachi or you know where where the you know or even New York, where it's much more clear how this is unequally affecting, you know, how the shutdown protects or the, the lockdown protects some people better than others. And so, but let's say that aloud, that this is a model that destroys the existence of some people to protect everybody else from getting ill and especially protect those who can protect themselves from getting ill because not everybody can protect themselves. And I think we should be very clear on this, that this is, this is not, I don't know where the radicals went really. And I think we need to say that mm -hmm. much more clearly. And there is of course various people in media saying that, but the, the mainstream German media gives you advice on how to homeschool your kids. Mm -hmm which creates more inequality. I think we should all stop doing that. Because if we can, if, if part of us, if the academics, my left-wing academic friends in Berlin were homeschooling their kids, doing that makes them well prepared to come back to school when they finally can come back. But the disadvantaged kids that they 
share the classroom with will not. So the gap that's already there in education, this is a piece I'm actually writing. The educational gap that's already there is going to be widened at the end of Corona because of the homeschooling. And this is a fact. We know that homework in Germany is one of the reasons why educational results of children, depending on the on the family, no, that the, the way in which the family handles homework has a significant effect on, on school results. So children that have a household where the habitus of the family is one of supporting their children with homework already do much better in the Berlin educational system. Now we're sending all the kids home, everyone. And the teachers start telling the parents to teach the children. Ignore the fact that money don't even speak German and all these kind of things that are, you know, that are living in various conditions. We all, we now all homeschooling. And people even post positive stuff about this, about how they're homeschooling this, their kids. And I'm like, you've got to be ashamed of yourself. Because you and with all your left-wing radical ideas, you're reproducing social inequality exactly by homeschooling your kids. So why don't you just refuse? Why can we not have a Bildungsstreik? Where is the critical? Then, of course, the answer you get is, yeah, but I can't make a political project out of my children. I'm just impressed or, 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 or surprised by seeing people who, who've talked for years about equality and the need for equal society and all these kind of things. The moment the virus hits, turn inwardly to their own families and homeschool their kids. Whereas by the very fact of doing that, you're reproducing the social inequalities that you said you were fighting against. And this is not unique. You know, this is this is a pattern that we see in, you know, the difference between what people believe should be and what they do in their own families is known to be to be quite large. Now we did a paper on on diversity in a Rotterdam neighborhood with Gwen van Eyck years ago, where we found that people were very keen to to say that they were very interested in diversity and yet their social networks were never so diverse as 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 one would have assumed on the basis of of their of their admiration for 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 a life full of diversity so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of research also from tim butler in london and people who've written about these kind of things of the metropolitan habitus as a way of enjoying the diversity in as a as a backdrop for the rest of their life so to say but then still i'm sad, sort of disappointed that that uh, by the easiness where when then the state says you go home and teach your kids on top of everything else you have to do that there's some sort of complaining about it on 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 the sort of personal level but that there's not a significant movement that says hey wait a minute Doing this actually when our kids come back to school will will reproduce or strengthen the in class and in between school inequalities that we already know we have, and that surprises me. Well, Talia, I mean, this has been uh, uh, truly fascinating and really insightful. So I would really th uh, like to thank you very much for for, for taking your time. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.